live yet again. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday at the appointed hour. Terry uh, Givens, Dr. Terry Givens, how are you? Uh, how are you doing today? I am doing very well here in Menlo Park, California. Nice. And, uh, yeah, nice. Starting to cool off, but otherwise, uh-huh. it's good. It's been uh, unseasonably warm, which we're not complaining about that here in Brooklyn. Uh, although I think in the back of our minds, we're like, hmm, it's been warm for a while. But uh, but in addition to this small talk, we're joined by a, a wonderful guest. So we have Jonathan Friedman here uh, on today's show. Jonathan, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Hi, Terry. Great to be here. And uh, Jonathan, just so that folks uh, out there that they know we're talking about free speech uh, a bit on today's show, but can you introduce yourself uh, to our audience and describe a little bit about how you relate to what's going on in free speech in higher ed? Sure, yeah. So I'm the director of the Campus Free Speech Program at Penn America. And for those who might not know our work, Penn is a a nearly 100-year-old nonprofit that's situated at the uh, intersection of literary expression and human rights. And then I lead and direct all of our efforts uh, in the higher ed realm, which includes doing workshops on campuses, uh, free speech education programs for students, advising senior uh, faculty and uh, administrative leaders, and really just trying to improve the climate for, uh, you know, we say free speech, but in some ways it's really just the climate for conversation, for dialogue, for understanding, Mm -hmm. and for, uh, you know, sometimes these conversations around free speech we talk a great deal about the First Amendment and about the law, but there's so much more to it uh, when it intersects with issues of equity, justice, uh, racism, and uh, diversity in higher ed. So really, my work is situated at the intersection of those um, values, those universes. Yeah, mm-hmm. great stuff. And we're going to dive into that in some more depth uh, in a bit. But to, to start, uh, I think we just wanted to get a temperature check from the three of us, like what uh, what are the news items? Uh, apparently there was some news going on in the last week or so since we last met. Uh, so, so what's happening in the world around us? Uh, what's capturing our imagination? So Terry, any, uh, anything in the news, anything going on in the world around you that's capturing well, your attention these days? You know, I'm the political scientist, so mm-hmm. obviously I'm following what's happening with the post-election mess. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it seems like uh, that's the you know my reading there is that you know it's not completely unexpected what's happening, and um, you know we'll just have to see how it plays out. But my expectation is that you know our president-elect will be installed on January in January as expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh you know otherwise you know thanksgiving is coming and a lot of folks in higher ed are you know so campuses have been preparing for this right but you know i I also have a child coming home right before thanksgiving and i think we're all realizing oh you know is he going to get a test on campus before he leaves or does Mm -hmm. he get we get tested when he gets home do we quarantine you know there's all these issues coming up and of course we're in the middle of a spike so um even you know california has been doing relatively well um Texas hit a million cases before we did, Um, but we're going to hit it in the next week or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, the numbers are increasing everywhere. Uh, You know, and of course, course not just here in the U.S., but, uh, you know, basically Europe. I haven't really heard much about the rest of the globe, but definitely in Europe, they're they're having new clampdowns mm-hmm. um and so you know we're 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 entering the winter surge you know it's, right. it's gonna happen it's happening yeah. now as we speak and so right. it's really a challenge for you know for parents who are expecting you know their students to come home the communities they're going to be you know I, I mean i guess there was some issues with um you know halloween parties and and oh, and then the other thing that came up with you know the clemson Notre Dame game where the students right. rushed the field and mm-hmm. and apparently there were parties um around yeah. campus that weekend and mm-hmm. yeah uh Ah, and so, looks like yeah. Ruben. We have a, we have someone out there who's in Ottawa, Canada, too, which is also nice to hear from uh, the diverse perspective uh, from the outside. So we do have some folks yes. outside the U.S. Uh, in attendance. But yeah, it's been very much about the the pandemic spiking, but that news almost being subsumed by the bigger news around the election and what looks like it's going to be a protracted fight around the election, even though it looks like the the likely outcome is that uh, Biden will be inaugurated in January. Uh, but between now and January, those months are are very concerning in terms of the, the pandemic spiking. And then to your point, uh, Terry, uh, folks coming home from campus, it's more likely that that will potentially spread, uh, spread more of the virus. 
a lot of this does relate to uh, to free speech uh, as well. So, you know, Jonathan, we know it's not your one trick pony. We know you have range. You can talk about other things. But, uh, but any thoughts broadly uh, around those two issues and how they might relate to where some of the topics on free speech are heading, both the election, which I imagine is causing people's desire to speak to increase and try to understand what's going on there. Uh, and then also because of uh, the virus, much more of the speech is moving online. Uh, but just any general impressions, what's going on from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the election, as you said, you know, is encouraging and bringing its own wave of speech. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing, right? Political engagement, civic engagement is uh, a good thing. I think one of the biggest challenges we're seeing now in the wake of this is, you know, the disinformation, the uh, different informational universes that people are um, uh, sitting in where, uh, you know, a good chunk of people, uh, even if in the scheme of the American population, it's not that many, uh, really are just in a different universe uh, in terms of uh, what they read, what they, the news they consume, and uh, what they believe. And so I think one of the biggest challenges for higher education in this moment coming out of the election and around uh, COVID in particular is uh, this question of, well, how do we understand these things? What's our, our con conception of them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and then at the, the documentary I saw recently that was interesting about all this is called The Social Dilemma, uh, which I would recommend folks check out if you hadn't, haven't had a chance to yet. But it's a lot of folks who had worked in Silicon Valley, not far from where uh, Terry lives, actually, um, ex-Google, ex-Facebook uh, employees who uh, actually broke with those companies because of uh, the concerns around the echo chambers and the, the the other term I've heard is a filter bubble, which mm -hmm. is, you know, we all only see what the algorithm wants to feed us. And that is driven very much by what will drive our engagement. And frequently what will drive our engagement is negative. You know, it's outrage. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, it does seem like we're in a very dangerous time for uh, disinformation and um, almost like the concept of fake speech. Uh, you know, if stuff is created to distract and it's not authentically from the person who's supposedly saying it, um, it's like a whole new flavor of, oh, of sure. speech. That's any thoughts on what that is and how you've been trying to navigate yeah. that? I mean, these 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 aren't new things. Um, actually, one of the interesting things about working at a, a nearly 100-year-old organization is um, our 1948 charter includes in it a, um, a comment about mendacious publication. You know, they don't use the phrase fake news, but it's mm. we're a free expression organization and we're also committed to truth and, and you know, standing against falsehood. And so these things aren't new. The question is just how they've been heightened and exacerbated by the internet and uh well do we even call it the internet anymore i feel like even that phrase that term it's just it feels 20 years old i mean now mm. we're just talking that was when the internet was a thing outside of our daily lives it was like a thing you had to sit and like go onto or you know interact with now it's it's just everywhere it's everything yeah uh, so that's it's so heightened but i think i think more than anything else what we're seeing in the uh from the tech platforms especially twitter is some acknowledgement of these challenges where they've been trying to institute what's called friction, which is, you know, slowing down the speed at which people can pass things around. So now, I mean, mm -hmm. anyone on Twitter knows retweeting has become a little more laborious, right? You can't just scroll down, uh, yeah. you know, doom scroll and retweet everything. They, they ask you now, uh, you know, are you sure you want to send this if you didn't open it? I remember right. the first time I got asked that question and I, I was offended at my phone, you know, how dare you question yeah. my judgment? And right. I, I had to kind of pause and say, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm kind of glad you are. And I think I right. think it's an, it's an adjustment like anything else, which is there mm -hmm. was a new technology and now there's a kind of new citizen's responsibility as we engage digitally to say, well, okay, you know, I'll pause before I share that. And, and maybe that's okay because I'm being made to pause, but so is everybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I think that's a good new feature. I, I noticed it as well. And, and you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's also helpful for the bots, right? Because the bots can't just continuously retweet things either. So I think that's right. been a good update. Yeah. And then, then you have those labels, right? I mean, I remember, you know, on Saturday, essentially waiting to see what it was the President Trump was saying. And, you know, you had these threads from him, you know, claiming fraud and, and every single one 
was marked as, you know, fraudulent or questionable. So it was this very interesting, I mean, I think a lot in my realm about free speech and counter speech. And it was this interesting, it's almost like a dialogue now between Trump and the platform being Trump and I don't know Twitter if it's you know yeah. Jack or who but it's interesting to see that interplay also it it does you know it does raise questions in your head you're like oh interesting there's another side here so uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like the I think about the the fairness doctrine historically right in how we balance our presentation of these things I don't think it's quite the same with Twitter now but there is something similar in that sense of well let's just you know ca- put caution around this you know suggest that there's an alternative way of understanding it. I think that's important. Yeah. And then how do you how do you understand how to get administrators and members of faculty to be conversant and fluent both in the new media that's emerging and then also how to talk about speech as it relates to new media? Because I imagine there's a lot of there's probably a continuum there where some folks are much more you know, I'm learning a lot about Twitter from Terry, as an example, but not everyone is as far along. Uh, perhaps it's it's kind of a mixed bag. So, so how do you go about um, training and educating that sort of mixed set of uh, competencies around uh, like new media, digital media, that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, it's generational, like anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, we're here saying, okay, how do we help faculty, perhaps who might not understand Twitter, but even Twitter is old news compared to TikTok, which is really mm. where the action is now. Right. I mean, honestly, talk about um, an app that allows a creative, a free and creative expression, political expression, the arts. I mean, and, and you know, right now, it's that's a more uh, easily, easily manipulated platform right now in terms of misinformation than Twitter, because it's just so much more simpler to kind of create a video where you're talking. And uh, so, you know, if you're interacting with Twitter now, it's like, well, who wants to read all those words when I could just absorb images and song and creative dance? Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do think there is a kind of basic fluency with these things, which we can expect and, 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 would like professors and administrators to understand, uh, in, even if those who've been, you know, a little bit slower or less, I don't know, active in the digital transformations of our age. Yeah. But just even even between junior faculty who are increasingly adjunct faculty who who may view a lot of issues around speech and online speech quite differently from their senior counterparts. I mean, it's raised a lot of tensions around um, academic freedom for for folks to post online. There's a lot of questions around online harassment and threats that we've seen yeah. uh, lately. And, um, you know, I don't think any of that is going away uh, uh, in the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, no. I think it's going to be just as bad or worse. And, you know, the interesting thing, you mentioned TikTok. Well, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, Parler or Parlay. Um, this that's a new medium that a lot of you know I see all my friends on Facebook saying oh all the the right wing people are heading to parlor and and mm-hmm. I'm like oh okay <laughs> that's an interesting development because I you know something you've mentioned to me earlier um, Jonathan is this idea that we we're creating separate realities right and mm-hmm. and so you know are we going to get to a point where certain spaces you know you know Facebook and Twitter will be relegated to the middle you know, middle and left and middle left and the others, people on the right, far right, especially, will uh, you know head to to other. We've already seen that, um, and I forget the other place where some of the far right folks have been. Oh, 4chan mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, and you know, I, I even see this with my kids. You know, they have their um, you know disc, Discord servers, and, yep. and where they just you know they pull in like minded friends and mm-hmm. have their their ongoing uh, threads and, and so on. So mm-hmm. I think it's, I, I, I might, you know, for higher ed, it's going to be a lot harder to track what's going on because there's all these different, um, you know, platforms that are developing where people can go and, and, you know, have their own private conversations and create their own separate realities. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's such an interesting question for higher ed and like the kind of common, uh, common experience of reality, right? The common educated class, you know, that higher ed, as it expanded and as we expanded access, made possible. But now we have to really think about how does higher ed, how does gen ed requirements, right? I mean, these are again, like, like, like with anything, it's not like those conversations about how does higher ed, how does college education remain relevant to people? That's an an age old question. But you know, now. If you're not thinking in, as a college about how you're tackling polarization and how you're dealing with, you know, these digital information universes, 
you're going to be somewhat irrelevant. You know, it, it, it's an area where you can become irrelevant. I, I fear that. I fear that, you know, even like models of teaching um, now with as they've had to go virtual, you know, we've seen just, you know, like these these um, lawsuits from students about whether, you know, universities really upheld what they were paying for in tuition in the spring, which remain largely unresolved. I'm not mm -hmm. sure that we won't see more of that even through this year. Uh, even the summer, I mean, certainly in the K-12 sphere, most school districts were not really able, I mean, maybe you blame this on local, municipal, or state or federal government, wherever you lay the blame, the vast majority of school districts were not able to kind of pivot to digital instruction in the most effective ways. We're still living with that fallout, and that's also been the case in higher ed, where so much of the time it's based on, you know, the autonomy of the professor in the classroom to determine how they conduct it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think though that there is a group of faculty who are doing that excellently, but then there's others who are struggling. Um, how, do, how do you, you know, getting to that common conversation, common reality around this. Um, and we're going to have in the wake, even, even if, you know, let's hope the transitions and all that, all the kind of uh, ruckus we're seeing this week with lawsuits and, yep. you know, letting the president down slowly, hopefully that fades and, and we're able to get to a sense of normalcy and uh, a decorum come January. But this kind of lingering sense, uh, certainly among conservative students, that they don't belong on campuses, that campuses aren't uh, welcoming to them. I mean, that's not going to, that's going to fester even hard, more. Yeah. Especially if they feel, you know, jaded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Jonathan, I wanted to pick up a little more on something you touched on before, which is that speech has moved increasingly online um, as campus life has moved increasingly online. Although the counterpoint is with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and uh, even after uh the election was called for uh, the president-elect Biden, people took to the streets. So it's almost as though, you know, the idea of activating by physically going outside is becoming a more standard play that a lot of people are getting familiar with. It's scary because of COVID. So on one side, there's that. And on the other side is more, you know, it's the year of the webinar. There's a lot of stuff moving online that maybe was uh, formerly face-to-face. -face. Can you talk about how that, uh, it's sort of like a transforming landscape a bit for uh, where the speech is happening. And uh, I'd love to get some of your perspective on how you get get out ahead of some of those moves uh, or at least keep up with them when they're happening. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges that we're going to see in the next year um, is uh, the question of you know campus demonstrations and COVID-19. You know, where is the line? In mm -hmm. we've, we've already kind of seen this a little bit at the University of Miami. Uh, where there were a group of protesters who staged a die-in and then they kind of got in trouble for it. And um, there, there were questions around, you know, whether the university was properly upholding, uh, you know, rights to protest, rights to assembly. And I think it's very messy. You know, it's very messy when we're talking, when we get into rules surrounding masks and social distancing mm -hmm. in, in sort of upholding, um, um, being consistent. This was a theme I was talking about last week. Uh, uh, in uh, a program that we did on Friday it, it, about campus demonstrations and COVID-19, you know, if you're going to be holding sports events, well, where people are coming together and maybe there's social distance, but you're, you know, essentially as a university, you're condoning, you're allowing that sports event to go forward. Well, then you had best be as consistent when it comes to students who want to engage in uh, a, a, a kind of just, you know, maybe it's a civil disobedience act. Maybe it's just a protest around campus. Maybe they're wearing masks. Uh, maybe they're distanced and they're not, whether they're, you know, whether this is a pro Biden or, or pro Trump, whoever it is, consistency is key when it comes to certainly for mm. public universities, but even for private, um, you know, we, there's just got to be, um, regularly and fairly enforced rules around all kinds of forms of assembly and interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that's, that's, it's been a challenge. It, it will always, it will continue to be a challenge. And, um, you know, what commands the news cycle often um, drives how universities respond. Unfortunately, that is a, a huge, um, it's a huge motivator when you're getting negative publicity and when you're able to stay out of the light. But I think that the best way for universities and colleges to do that right now is, is finding that, um, consistency and how they're responding to issues of free speech. It's just mm -hmm. necessary. Yeah. I can't not bring up the the issue of Notre Dame in this context. Yeah. They've been dominating the news cycle for the last, you know, ever since uh, the their president, you know, went to the right. White House and right. got COVID. And now, you know, this last weekend they had the Clemson game and, right. you know, the students rushing the field and, 
And then, you know, they, there was a letter uh, that week um, that went out this week uh, to students who were partying. You know, it's like, okay, you have the biggest, you know, football game of the season for Notre Dame. And, you know, they're used to tailgating and, and all that. And even though there were a limited number of people in the stadium, I mean, I, I watched that, the end of that game, and I was just like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is, you know, how are they going to explain this? Right. I'm even backing it up to uh, Justin Turner at the World Series was the same thing, you know. And then, honestly, I think November 7th, when the election was called out in Brooklyn, you know, the streets of Brooklyn were not particularly COVID safe. They were okay. But, like, people were also just rejoicing, you know. And there is a, there's an interesting tension there. Like, how do you actually build in the safeguards and the good judgment? Um I think it's 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 certainly challenging. We do have a question here from uh, Ruben Friedman. Uh, looking forward to to hear this important discussion. Is there a difference between hate speech and offensive speech? So, uh, Jonathan, I don't know if you can uh, grab that one. Sure. I mean, um, I think the you know any kinds of speeches can be offensive. You know, in the U.S., there's no federal uh, law around or statute around defining what hate speech is, and I think. Um, often this is something, I mean, this comes back to what I talk about a lot with campus communities, which is basic free speech literacy. Um, you know, for, for, uh, high school students, they go to school in an environment in which there are a great number of rules. You know, you can't just show up to school with whatever you want on your t-shirt and not necessarily get in trouble. There are rules, but on a college campus, it's much more open. It's different. Nobody explains these things to young people. And those people often, many, you know, young engaged students turn into student affairs careers, uh, professionals or turn into faculty. And, you know, they might never acquire this, but it's very important to understand um, why it is that the U.S. doesn't have or why they have kind of consistently allowed a broad area of speech and, you know, resisted the notion of making some forms of hate speech illegal um, or, 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 or punishable has a, a great deal to do with this question of it's in the eye of the beholder. I, I Nothing brings this home, I think, right now more evidently than the fact that Trump has repeatedly referred to the slogan Black Lives Matter as a form of hate speech. And, you know, if you had uh, rules or laws against forms of hate speech alone that maybe Obama had put in to say, like, fight white supremacy, well, how those would be used by Trump would obviously have strengthened his ability to um, quash his opponents. So actually um, not having these rules in, in place, you know, in sort of telling people why it's important to respond to hate with, uh, you know, not to, that doesn't mean we don't respond to hate, but to respond to it with free speech and counter speech and speaking out rather than with censorship is so important precisely because of that fear of uh, uh, governmental intervention. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that's not well understood. And so when students, in particular students who are offended, it's it, and even university administrators have now taken to using this against um, uh, in many campuses, progressive faculty. So a progressive faculty member uh, right. in at Auburn University in Alabama called to defund the police. Uh, his that was termed hateful and uh, hateful by the university in uh, Texas. There was a, a professor who um, had uh, been tweeting about. Vice President Pence, and then her comments were called hateful and vile. Mm -hmm. And yep. I mean, you know, and that, those are just two. There's been a bunch of these, but so now we're already seeing, you know, again, all of these things that exist in the broader um, um, kind of uh, uh, zeitgeist. You know, they're always active in higher education, and yeah. they're they're always there. And this is one of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Terry, this reminds me a bit of uh, some of what you've talked about as well around the executive order, uh, like limiting. Yeah, yeah diversity yeah. training. Now it's as though training people in implicit bias and some of the other training uh, language that anti-racist language that is out there now is being tagged as by, by the, that executive order as, as, as like illegal or something that campus public campus campuses can't do. Any perspective from you on how that relates? Um, Jonathan, you mean, or no, I'm you. I'm asking you first, but I'll feel free to defer either yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. Um, this is a, a situation where you know somebody is telling. I mean, initially the thought was there was a focus on government uh, entities, but it's also government contractors, and every almost every single campus in the country is some, in some way or another a government contractor. So mm -hmm. the, the language is expansive. Um, and so they've been struggling with how to respond to this. And some have just come up and said, 
you know, we're not going to follow this. And others have said, you know, there have gotten legal opinions um, and that have said, okay, well, we just can't say these certain words. And, um, you know, others have just canceled uh, workshops and things. And, you know, I think that, that it, you know, it, it, you know, there is no free speech here in this context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's, it's a situation where, you know, the, the actual curriculum is being addressed. Right. Um, that uh, trainers are using. So, you know, it's not a free speech issue per se, but, you know, I, I think the ACLU is just getting ready. Either they have jumped in, and I know the ACE uh, sent a letter to the, the, the White House to, you know, say this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but but then I think I saw from you, Jonathan, that this is producing a chilling effect, right? So the the likelihood that folks will adopt these types of trainings, which uh, which may be really needed and may be ultimately beneficial, the fact that this executive order exists, maybe you lose funding, maybe you get uh, some negative feedback that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Any perspective from you on uh, the executive order around diversity training and how some of that relates to to the free speech? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a, a this is the move of an authoritarian. Uh, regime, you know, plain and simple. And nothing, I think, exemplifies the contradictions here than the fact that at the same time as they have been told uh, all public universities or or even saying like any contractor who gets any money from the federal government, if they have these kinds of conversations or have these phrases, you know, at all going on, mm-hmm. could put that funding at risk. I mean, that's, these are, that's an extreme move, but it comes at the same time as the Trump administration has uh, trumpeted um, their uh, efforts to defend free speech on campus and even started launching investigations. So they've been investigating in the past few months, all kinds of campuses, almost um, uh, almost all of them over uh, conservative speech, where some you know conservative faculty member or a student is engaged in some kind of complaint with the university. And then they're saying, well, that's not upholding free speech. So they're doing that with one hand. And then with the other, they're trying to say, okay, but you also can't have all these kinds of conversations. And the thing is, conversations about racism in America are not, it's not like everyone is having this conversation. This is a, that is a difficult conversation. We saw this summer uh, after, in the wake of the um, hashtag uh, and the success of the hashtag turn movement, you know, black in the Ivy, um, um, you know, uh, all of this kind of outpouring of stories from folks, from faculty and students of color, graduate students talking about, you know, sometimes it's a microaggression, but a lot of the times it's pretty, you know, obvious and serious racism that people have been encountering. And some of them are talking about things that have been happening for years. And the thing is, it was like, all of a sudden people said, okay, it's okay to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the national conversation around free speech for so long has been largely tilted toward this orientation that, that you know, liberal, left-leaning, progressive uh, ideologies on campus reign and others do not. But the reality is that doesn't necessarily mean that all these people of color working in higher education have been so comfortable confronting racism in wherever it rears its ugly head. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they haven't. And, you know, one of the most um, interesting takes on a lot of that I read said, you know, most of the time people are probably holding back even Mm -hmm. the most extreme ones, you know. So whatever they're saying, there's even a more extreme experience that they're really not putting on Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that that that. Um, we sh- would be preventing such conversations from happening or in reaction to those conversations saying, let's close them down, uh, you know, just seems so extreme. It seems completely contradictory. It's totally uh, two-sided and it, it, there'd be no way to enforce this anyways. But meanwhile, I've spent the past month hearing tons, I mean, so many anecdotes, but whispers, you know, um, they, my, they, the university wanted to review my slides for my diversity training. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, you know, sometimes it's racially, racial diversity training. Sometimes it's gender diversity trainings. Um, and, you know, it is, it has a widespread chilling effect, even to the extent that in Illinois, a professor uh, who was invited to give an academic talk about uh, uh, Latinx identity had his talk canceled. And I, I spoke to him about that experience. And, you know, this is, you know, it is the most extreme form of disinvitation and violation of academic freedom you can imagine where it's like, I'm a professor invited to give my expertise yeah. and I've had my, my talk closed down. And, you know, it's like a blip on the national radar, but right. you know, Ann Coulter was delayed a week, two years ago at Berkeley and it was all we talked about. So, right. you know, it's total inconsistency from a principled free speech defense. 
-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I think of all, I mean, myself included, all of us who do research on race and anti-discrimination policy and, you know, my book, Radical Empathy, talks about, you know, white supremacy and, and the roots of racism and, and all of that. And, you know, to, to think that we, you know, I mean, obviously this can't stand. Eventually, I think it will be, if it's not taken care of by the next administration, it will be taken care of by the courts. But, right. um, you know, I just don't see how this can stand, given that there aren't similar you know, prohibitions against other forms of, you know, trainings and things like that. But, mm -hmm. but in any case, I mean, the underlying premise is to just, just to be disruptive, right? To, to put a, you know, anyway, it's always about questioning what's going on. And, um, you know, and, and I think what, what the end result will be is administrations being more questioning about these mm -hmm. things. Because, you know, in the past it's been, oh, yes, of course we should do this. But now I think you're going to see more reluctant administrations say, oh, well, maybe, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Right, right. I mean, I think there's a productive way to engage in questioning, you know, quote unquote, diversity training carte blanche, you know, is mm -hmm. every form of conversation, like it is, there are different models out there. There's not one form of diversity training, like it, it the whole, everything about this um, executive order, you know, it, it sets it up as a caricature of like, this is the same thing happening everywhere in every conversation. There's tremendous diversity within that diversity of philosophy, diversity of practitioners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's terrible to say, well, let's all kind of evaluate how we're having these conversations. Yeah. What have we learned this summer? Um, uh, how do we talk? How do we talk about race and racism? Is not mm -hmm. easy. Like it's not simple. Right. Um, and if a group of people are finding tremendous difficulty with those conversations, um, you know, black, white, whatever, however, whatever background they're from, I think it's reasonable to say, okay let's evaluate this. But the right. notion that we should respond with, oh, well, therefore some words we won't say anymore. Right. You know, right. the, the, we don't like those words. We don't like those phrases. I mean, even, you know, one of the trickle effects of this has been, I was told of a campus where faculty removed texts from a syllabus um, because they might, you know, create scrutiny uh, because mm. they were like people, uh, people whose writings were being taught that had associations with critical race theory. The notion that that a university would now take some body of thought right. and just remove it, you know, and people people talk about critical race theory like it's like one book, you know, right. like, it's like a hey, sentence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm. it's like it's a thriving discipline. There's disagreements like it's like we're just going to, you know, take out sociology. Well, here, political science, you know, tomorrow it's like it's like, uh, you know, there would be no no question, no comparison. And so, um, you know, I, th I think we just have to have our eyes wide open to just just how uh, poorly thought out this executive order was, but also yeah. the incredible effect it's having. And, you know, what everyone told me was, well, let's wait and see if Biden wins. But there's still we're still now in this kind of extended period of uncertainty mm -hmm. where even if people are comfortable that he's going to be inaugurated and all that, right? All of the a lot of this diversity training stuff is kind of on pause secretly, quietly, mm -hmm. um, or being reviewed. Right. Right. And that, that kind of leads me a bit uh to uh a bit of a shift, I guess, to the another buzzword that's out there is trauma informed. So being mm -hmm conscious of the impact of your words and what you're doing and then also being sensitive to the fact that people may uh respond differently to what you're saying than, than maybe you were intending and then also understanding that uh people are hurting out there these days and trying to train people you know terry you've written extensively about the importance of empathy and how to train people on empathy but uh but maybe beginning with you uh jonathan uh, any perspective on the the social social emotional side of this and the idea of uh trying to be kind and sensitive to to how people are feeling um i'd love to get a little bit of your take on that because that, that that also does touch on free speech mm -hmm. you know i think i think it, it's something i said already which is about the importance of consistency um and already there is um this sense, you know, when the last election happened and there were it kind of birthed this conversation about safe spaces in higher education, for example, you know, giving people space, uh, approaching people with, you know, empathy to understanding that they would like some time to process or kind of move through a difficult thing or have a space on campus where they feel that they can, you know, I don't know, be among uh, like-minded individuals or people who share their identity, you know, that was roundly ridiculed. Um, and, you know, I do think you, the concept that like a whole campus should be safe from any kinds of speech in any spot in it is too extreme. 
the same time, I think, you know, a degree of empathy around like, oh, well, like any student club, people could get together. But what's interesting is to see, you know, four years later, right now, the conversation is all about, you know, empathy and giving people time to process and, you know, particularly for Trump supporters, letting them down easily, you know, it's been very fervent. We are dealing with people who very much a lot of time have a strong, you know, cult of appreciation of this person. So I say the same thing now about that, which is yes, give them a chance to process. It is unfortunate that they believed in this political leader and he lost. And I like, Mm -hmm. I don't believe in that person myself, but I can be empathetic. And I, as a professor, as an instructor, as an administrator, I can, you know, at least give some space for that uh, on campus. But we have to be consistent. We have to be consistent in how we treat that across, you know, whether it's issues of race or issues of political disagreement and whether we're conservative or or progressive in our, our orientation. And so it's what, what I think irks a great number of people right now, particularly on the left, is this view of inconsistency. It's that inconsistency that we're seeing with, with the Trump administration on issues of free speech, which is, you know, we use this word, but really we just mean it uh, in a very unprincipled way. And that, that's where it's so dangerous and why it's been such, why it's causing such controversy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's very disingenuous, uh, a lot of it. And, you know, I have to say, I, I talk a lot about trauma-informed leadership, which, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to, um, you know, even give people space. What it means to me is that you keep in mind that people have experienced, especially right now with COVID, that they're experiencing mm-hmm. different kinds of trauma. Mm-hmm. And that when we are teaching or working with people or you know discussing topics, that we have to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean we don't talk about things. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that, you know, things, you know, things are happening. And and so I think there's a, a big, you know, it's to me, it's not about necessarily creating space. It's it's about being aware how people may respond to particular issues because of what they have been through, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so, um, you know, because, I, 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 you know, Jonathan, I mean, this came up with all the trigger warnings and, and things like that. And frankly, I don't mind trigger warnings. Um, it's just hard to figure out when they're needed and, and when not. And, mm-hmm. and so I think we're all, you know, struggling through that. Um, but, you know, I certainly um, wish sometimes when I'm watching a, a TV show or something that they would give me a trigger warning because I don't necessarily want to see what they're putting on the screen. But, um, you know, it's my choice to watch TV. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a like challenge. anything, you know, it can there, there's a reasonable version and then there's an extreme version, right. you know, and so it's like finding the right balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a question here from uh, Tarrant. How does how does Penn regard social media policies for faculty and staff, for example, requiring disclosure of affiliations, professional behavior, et cetera. Uh, So Jonathan, can you take that? Jonathan? Sorry, it was a little delayed. We got a little delayed. You're talking about this one about um, social media policies. Yes. Um, So so yeah, I I would encourage um, anyone in the audience to check out our online campus free speech guide where we've we've put some adva- some advice out that's a very general nature and i just pulled up the link here for this question to our lips uh, to our tips for um using social media for faculty you know i think in general um i think it's not a bad practice for faculty to have some respect and mindfulness around the fact that you know putting out something in their bio on twitter that you know my comments don't reflect my institution something like that you know yep. legally that hasn't yet been tested. I mean, it's actually completely meaningless in any sense other than a cultural one. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is, comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is the conversation around speech and, and free speech and academic freedom, all these things. Right. I mean, it's only 30% a legal and law conversation. We're talking right. about how people are respectful for one another. We're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about trigger warnings or safe spaces. I mean, all of these things, radical empathy, you know, we're mm-hmm. talking about cultural ways in which we respect and understand each other. And so in the same way that, um, you know, we might, you know, suggest that a campus that, that, that in the same way that I would say that a university administration has to be mindful of the fact that their faculty have free speech rights and have academic freedom rights. I don't think it's so much to ask a faculty to have something there if it makes the university uh, more pleased, particularly, you know, there are these campuses that have very strong alumni bases and they have great passion for their institutions and you know they see um any you know any professor as somehow um i don't know violating those concepts they're going to get upset that's on the university to make clear to that those alumni and to the community at large like look i mean terry you and i i think have talked about this before universities are 
in, I mean, it's essentially like a city. Like, what is it? It's a it's a city. It's a corporation. It's a a network. It's a, a community. You know, it's not a single thing. It's it's not a small organization. It's it's nuanced. It's complex. There's debate and disagreement within it. But mm -hmm. um, so the more that that universities can help, I think, educate the public that you know, just because someone works at a university doesn't mean they speak for it. You know, that's on them to do. Um, but you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for faculty to help with that. Where I do worry is where um, I do think it's important on one hand that where where if you have someone who works at university and they're engaging in, you know, hateful or racist, uh, homophobic blogging online or something like that, I think it's okay and in fact important for the university to expect to express empathy to be able to speak out in its voice and say, you know, this person has the right to do this, but they don't represent us. I think that is uh, perfectly reasonable. Where mm -hmm. it gets difficult, though, is in places where the speech itself might not be racist, but it's offended a lot of people. So how does the university in that case, um, you know, how do they walk that line? And, and it's difficult. Uh, you might be, as an administration, prone to kind of wanting to throw under a bus or, or kind of turn your back on a faculty member who has you know, irked your big donors. And like, that's a mm -hmm. real challenge we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then uh, Terry, maybe from you as someone who I've seen put yourself out there uh, and you talk a lot about leadership. Um, how do you, how do you model good behavior, quote unquote, good, or, uh, you know, best practices or just ways to put yourself out there uh in a way that's critical and measured, you know, I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective because you aren't, you don't seem to be shying away from uh, a lot of the more controversial topics. So any tips or any ideas uh, for, for folks who are watching? Yeah. I mean, I guess my take on it is to come at it from, you know, I always try to back up whatever I say um, with, you know, whether it's a, news article or research or data. I mean, it's interesting because when I was writing my book on radical empathy, you know, I'm talking about a lot of hot button topics like white supremacy and, and you know, internalized oppression and all these things. And I, you know, the, my first step was to educate myself mm -hmm. and to make sure that I was coming at this from a position of knowledge and not just, you know, flipping off things without any thought. Um, so, I, I think that a critical component for my advocacy work and whatever I'm doing is to come at it, first of all, to educate myself and make sure what I'm saying is accurate. Uh, but secondly, it's also to include, you know, some material. So, you know, it's, Twitter is a notoriously bad space. Somebody mentioned this earlier because it's, you know, that you can't um, yeah. put a whole lot in there. Uh, and so what we, what I, you know, I always try to make sure that, you know, I, I add some, you know, a link to something or, um, and if I'm not sure, then I probably won't, you know, tweet it, but, right, um, right. you know, this has been part of the problem. And, you know, I, I have to admit once or twice on Facebook, you know, I, I, I reposted or shared something that was, you know, was either old or, or you know, right. wasn't, you know, and it's easy to do that when you're, you know, I don't mind the doing that because that's more of a personal space for me. I, I have a public right page but my personal facebook page you know okay i made a mistake i just delete it but right, on right. Twitter and and you know my public facebook page um you know or linkedin i'm much more careful about uh, making sure i back everything up with with you know facts and, and yeah. you know follow up and and people oftentimes are really interested in knowing what where's the research here what's how can i learn more about this and, right. and that's something I, i've i've seen a lot more lately is people are have this hunger um, to know more. And so right. I think for me personally, it's important to connect what I, I'm talking about to what's happening what research-wise, because I'm coming from a research tradition in political science. Mm -hmm. And so um, that also helps with what Ruben's mentioning here, that, you know, uh, that meaning isn't set. And, you know, that we can, we do have longstanding norms and, and you know, ways that things are, 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 you know, supposed to, to work in our, mm -hmm. our governmental structures and, and even in our you know, academic institutions. A lot of what we do in our academic, I'm sure you know this, Jonathan, a lot of the things we do in academia are just norms. There's no laws, there's no legality around it, and it's mm -hmm. up to us to uphold those norms. Mm -hmm. 
You know, and I want to, on that, I want to actually, I, I didn't quite comment on something in this last question, which I wanted to come back to, which is the question of like professional behavior in a social mm -hmm. media policy. I missed that a little bit the first time, but rereading it, you know, I think it's, it, it, I, to me, to my mind, and, you know, I think I, I don't, maybe I, I don't fully grasp it, but to me right now, the way that this exists, the concept of, you know, professors should, in, should conduct themselves professionally with professional behavior, that actually is an, an AAUP uh, concept originally. So it has a long-term history and it does rely on judgments. It means that if you lead a university, there might be a situation where you have to decide, you have to judge if a faculty member, um, um, you know, violated that concept in some way. So to me, having it as a social media policy that like you're an employee or you're a faculty member here and we expect that you would uh, we know that your comments don't reflect this, but we'd ask that, you know, you engage in you know professional behavior online. Like, I don't think it's terrible to have a clause like that uh, mm -hmm. in what you, you set out. But the trick is enforcement. And this is like just like with the COVID stuff we were talking about before or even with the hate speech stuff we were talking about. You know, the challenge is how do we respond to other people's speech in ways that are. Um, you know, using citizens, citizens engaging with citizens. I think mm -hmm. the challenge is when it becomes institutional authorities. Um, that's where it's prime for abuse. So in the same way that if we, you know, had a hate speech law, there'd be concern about how it was applied fairly or equally and, and who's in power and how they would decide. It's the same in terms of this professional behavior concept, I think, for, for universities, which is, this is why the question, I'm, I'm, I imagine this is why it's being asked, and this is why it has kind of irked people, is because they don't trust their university leaders that they wouldn't use it in some way to harm someone. So, mm -hmm. um, and similarly with COVID stuff, I mean, like look at Notre Dame, if you punish all of those students, okay, well, that's all just coming back at, at Father Jenkins, at the leader of the university, who also broke the rules. Right. So, you know, there has to be some way to say to people, we want you to do this. We want you to wear masks. We think it's important. Here's the public health. But if you respond, like NYU tried to suspend a few students uh, who they caught through some video not wearing masks and not socially distancing, but it was highly selective. The students filed the suit and they won. And they said, you know, that it wasn't fair. And so this is the challenge once it starts to get into... Once we're, we're turning toward discipline as the only answer to free speech controversies, whether they're faculty or students or, or, or what have you, um, it's, it gets very tricky. And we, we do, it's better to rely on judgments than to have, um, you know, blanket across the board rules that are going to be subject to being, you know, politicized. Um, but at the same time, it's better, I think, just in most cases to kind of step back from the brink, to pause, to consider where people are coming from. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we didn't used to have to teach this as much to people uh, now that like we just live in this age of, you know, extreme outrage. But uh, I think it's really important that people remember it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, one of the benefits of having a two year old is I watch lots of, uh, you know, pre preschool uh, social emotional learning uh, content, uh, which which is actually much more calming than uh, than watching uh, broadcast news these days. I did want to talk to both of you about maybe starting uh, with you, Jonathan, is. How do folks actually get trained on this? You know, one thing that um, Terry's talked about a lot is that you're not always trained on how to teach as you're pursuing your doctorate or you're getting your, you know, your tenure track or whatever position you might have in higher ed. Uh, I imagine that's also true frequently in terms of how to how to understand free speech, how to know how to engage it uh, appropriately. Uh, so, uh, can you? Can you talk a little bit about how how it can be done, how your organization is helping it get done? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually um, one of the biggest missteps of the past few years around what's called the campus free speech um, legislation in a lot of states that's been passed by a lot of states and kind of sometimes tried at the federal level, too, which is they respond to these uh, issues with, you know, investigating universities and punishing students and suspending them. And sometimes they have this clause. It's very interesting. They'll say, um, and, you know, the university has to tell students uh, about their free speech policies. And what's that turned into? It's turned into an email nobody opens mm -hmm. that incoming students receive about here's something about free speech. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas what you could do is treat, you know, react to this problem with education. You know, education is so powerful. So, you know, you could have a, a kind of federally supported or state supported effort. You know, look, free speech on campuses is a problem. Let's invest in better training people in, you know, remembers civic education and you know legal education and and you know i often say this to people free speech 
literacy is an equity issue. Like it's mm. with, you know, right now, if, if nothing else, the past few years is an illustration or even the summer of who believes that they have the right to file lawsuits yep. when their speech is aggrieved and who's just silent. Who's not even at that stage, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't have access to the same knowledge. And I think uh, many of the dynamics we see right now are a result of a retraction in understanding about the power of free speech. Frankly, uh, you know, among progressive communities, among communities of color, you know, a kind of reticence and uncertainty and de-education around that at the same time as we've seen it kind of really, you know, rallied around by the conservative side. Um, and of course, free speech should be for all, right? It, there should be fair and equal provisions um, and education. So what we've been trying to do at Penn is actually just this, is, is invest in education. Uh, we're developing um, some new programs for uh, administrators, uh, for faculty, and for students to come together to, so, you know, in, in kind of training modules where they could get certificates, professional certificates, or student certificates in free speech or free speech advocacy. Um, and, and in a lot of those programs, we're approaching it with a very... Um, you know, very not just you know talking about free speech on its own. It's not just about let's learn the First Amendment. It's let's talk about free speech and hate. Let's talk about free speech and misinformation. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about free speech in America and you know understanding the global context that free speech is a human right. That mm -hmm. you know in many countries it is you know rules and laws against what, about what you could say are always used to punish people critical of governments. You know the uh, I always think of this um, um, painter in. Um, uh, uh, she's a Kurdish painter, and sh a painting she made was seen as an act of terrorism, a painting, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when you when you kind of learn about those examples around the world, it changes how you think about free speech. It changes mm -hmm. your capacity to understand why we allow some forms of hate in this country, um, because it's understanding that broader repercussions around how we penalize and deal with speech. So, you know, for us, we've been, before the pandemic, we were doing a lot of traveling to campuses to do these programs. Now we've pivoted a lot of them uh, to being on, run online. We continue to tailor them also. So developing programs that are for specific communities of practice in higher education with some professional, uh, some of the national professional organizations or with specific campuses. And that's the way that we're trying to move the needle on this issue and have an impact. Uh, again, with a mind to understanding that uh, uh, the first instinct when we don't like something someone is saying is punish them, get them in right. trouble. Mm -hmm. And the much harder instinct is how can I understand, you know, more in a more more nuanced and more informed way why this micro moment right. and the feelings I'm having right now could be managed differently in spite, you know, in kind of honor of or in a spirit of free speech and open dialogue. It's right. hard. It's hard to do that. But that's, I do believe that the education is, is the way to go. Yeah. And I think it's a place where if you also are intentional about the teaching opportunity when there is dissent, when there are different opinions, uh, you know, the, I think it's John Stuart Mill who talked about the tyranny of the majority. Like it is a real thing that happens where everybody starts to believe one thing or the majority of people do, and it becomes harder to voice a dissenting opinion. I think being able to encourage that and model how to deal with dissent, uh, you know, equitably and fairly is really hard, but when you do it, it's, it's net, it's a net benefit to your culture. And that's true. Um, you know, the culture building aspect of higher ed, is huge now as well, where, you know, campuses, universities that act, that have vibrant cultures are going to continue to thrive. Those that don't really have a sense of mission or a sense of how to engage, build that sense of belonging. Um, any perspective on that, um, really from either of you? Uh, maybe begin with you, Jonathan, looks like you're nodding. Yeah, well, I, I was just gonna say, I was thinking, you know, that is, um you know, the most, one of the most vibrant classes I ever taught, it was a few years ago, um, what the, there was this kind of, ma the majority of the students were somewhere in the middle, and we had this outlier who was talking in terms of critical race theory, and it was like before that, mm -hmm. you know, language, that concept, before that was on, you know, in the public sphere the way it is now, mm -hmm. you know, that student was the outlier in the room, you know, they were the one who was saying, who, who at first said, well, you know, it's white supremacist in a way mm -hmm. that was extending that concept beyond the way it was, beyond the way it was, you know, kind of historically or conventionally known. And, you know, it enriched the conversation in the class. You know, I don't think most people, other students, uh, you know, agreed with with that student, but 
um, it was like it was like opening a keyhole, you know, and that's why it's so important, you know, to protect those perspectives, to kind of welcome those perspectives. Um, at the same time, the same class also had one student who was clearly more conservative on the political spectrum. Um, you know, I don't think that student was racist, but they certainly, you know, raised certain, you know, issues and concerns, particularly around, you know, the cost of higher education and around, um, um, you know, whether it was being equitably uh, participated in by low income white communities in the country. So, you know, there was like a very interesting set mm -hmm. of conversations in that room. And there were these two outliers who often were at odds with one another, but it was exactly as you said, you know, how do we welcome that dissent? How do we make space for it? And understand that, you know, still and still somehow at the end of the semester have those students you know maybe they're not best friends but they retain respect for each other there's still a mm -hmm. sense of community you can still kind of come back together and i do think that that i think you said culture building role you know has always been there in higher education but it's it's vitally important now mm -hmm. yeah and um before we we finish i wanted to just uh, see if we get it part at least partly address the little question we had for from elizabeth is um, what changes might be needed to free speech laws when threatening speech comes from the highest leader in the land? I mean, I, I think, you know, the and, and the question goes on, but I mean, from the broader perspective, you know, you've already answered it to a certain extent, Jonathan, is, you know, we're not going to change our, our free speech laws. Um, you know, I think that one of the challenges, you know, going forward is going to be, um, and, you know, I think a lot of the the discussion has been around okay, we have free speech, so how do we, you know, it's, it's, and I forget the term you mentioned before, Jonathan, but it's, it's about being able to, uh, you know, like on Twitter, we, we say, okay, this is clearly not correct, and here's what really happened, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's addressing the, the speech itself rather than trying to regulate the speech. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it might, I, I hear what you're saying. I think there that there's no question that the Trump presidency raised questions we never had to deal with before. And they're serious questions about elected officials and their free speech and their license to twist the truth, to engage in hate, to denigrate, right? Um, um, to twist and, and turn and all the things that Trump has done. Um, you know, one of the things that Pan America did was we filed a lawsuit two or three years ago now uh, which hasn't been resolved, but it was about his threats to um, use the power of government against those who are critical of him. So his threats, for example, to penalize Amazon because of the Washington Post, which are both owned by Jeff Bezos, you know, so, um, um, and other ways in which he had um, deprived, you know, press passes of, of those who had, um, who were covering him negatively. Mm -hmm. I think that those questions weren't really resolved. One of the other ones is, um, um, one of the other ones that's that's been unresolved is um, uh, whether Trump's Twitter account. This is still this case is still going on. Is Trump's Twitter account um, private? Is he a private citizen when he's using it, or is or is he the president? It's not clear. Mm -hmm. And I'm and I am I am particularly alarmed. Honestly, uh, I think that if had this issue come earlier in the presidency, we might have seen more where it could go. But I am particularly alarmed about the ways in which. Trump has politicized things like the uh, CDC and the virus response. You know, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't get to that point where he was saying there's a vaccine and we had the scientific community saying, no, there isn't, you know, a week before the election. And that that didn't quite come to pass as some imagined. But, you know, who knows what the next two or three months are going to bring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think like maybe there are um, realms in which the president should not necessarily have full and, you know, unfettered free speech in his official capacity, whether that means that things like CDC or other government entities um, retain some kind of, um, you know, distance or distant authority. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't want to say that there's nothing, you know, often I think the reaction to this kind of question is, well, no, there's nothing we can do. You know, the reality is that there's a great deal we can do um, to think about the context surrounding speech and even the speech of the president too. So, you know, maybe, maybe there is something that, um, uh, that can be done in that vein. We just didn't quite see it in enough time. But I don't. I reject the notion that there, there's, you know, that if we had a president doing this again in the future, that we would have um, continue to have no ability to respond. The Supreme Court is only one mechanism among many. Yeah, and we're uh, we're running out of time for free speech. But I know for folks who enjoyed this type of conversation. You've launched a similar uh, weekly show as well, Jonathan, right? So can you just share with folks if they want to hear more of this type of talk, if they want to follow you, what they can do, where they can go? 
Yeah, absolutely. So our program is called The Common Room. We get together on Fridays. It's an open conversation, uh, different themes each week. Uh, so we started about a month ago this Friday. Uh, here's the link in the chat for our program that's going to be this Friday at noon Eastern. Uh, so a little early if you're on the West Coast, um, but you can wake up with us maybe. Um, but we're going to be talking this Friday about confronting threats and harassment against faculty, taking that, uh, going deeper on that topic. And you can see um, recordings of previous conversations. Uh, coming up, we have programs looking at academic freedom in the history classroom, adjunct faculty, and uh, other issues. And otherwise, please uh, feel free to, to follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Jay-Z Friedman. Awesome. Great. And um, we'll be sure to post that in our brighter discussion forum as well, Jonathan, and, and I'll spread that around on our social media. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. And actually, we, we didn't get to talk much about veterans today, but I just want to wish those out there who are watching a, a, mm -hmm. a that uh, thank you for your service, those who are veterans, and especially to family members of mine who are are today uh, enjoying uh, Veterans Day. So, awesome! Thanks all. Yes. Thank you all. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Terry. Bye bye. Bye bye.